0: My name is Brian Martin and you are listening to episode three of season three of the Running Technique Tips podcast. This season, we're talking all things cross country and road racing and training and Lisa's been doing a lot of talking about cross-country this week. You had, a, you had a big interview with Andrew about his complete history of cross-country running. How was that?
1: I did. I've been a busy little beaver this week. I had mentioned last week that I'd started reading through Andrew Hutchinson's book. He wrote uh, The Complete History of Cross-Country Running because you and I were um, – having to admit that we actually didn't know anything about the history of cross-country running and uh, I I finished the book and then had a really good chat with Andrew and you know sometimes when you 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 know you haven't met someone Andrew lives in in the states and you just start talking about something that's a common interest and literally the hour we went I think we spoke for a little oh yeah about an hour and it honestly felt like about 10 minutes so it was great and highly highly knowledgeable
0: yeah you went like deep Deep Into cross country. <laughs> you must have really, really hit it off. You went full cross country nerd.
1: I was a total cross country nerd during the week, and I don't know I actually really enjoyed it because it made me realize even more and more this sport that you know is sort of forced upon you throughout you know, in Australia, starting from primary school, and I'm pretty sure in other areas across the world, it's a similar thing. You go through the schooling system, and everyone has a school cross country. And it's sort of something that you just do, but don't really know anything about.
0: That's fantastic. And uh, you, you, I actually haven't had a chance to have a, have a listen yet, but I'm looking forward to doing that when I do the edit of the show yeah. after we speak. But apparently, Andrew was quite impressed with your background, knowledge and research and the fact that you'd actually read his book.
1: Yeah, well, as I said, I, honestly, I spent, you know, a bit over a week. It's quite a lengthy book and for listeners, we'll put all of the details up in the show notes. But when you realise that there's over 200 years of history to go back on. There's a reason why it's, you know, a lengthy book and Andrew does a really good job of detailing sort of decade by decade and then even eras in sport, you know, women in running the Olympics. And so, it gets really, really detailed. So, I've totally nerded out over the last week. It was great.
0: That's good. That's good. Is there any particular highlight that you could share with the listeners to encourage them to listen to the end of the, the, end of the episode where we're going to have that interview?
1: Do you know what? There, there's a couple of things. And one thing, I, I'm glad you brought this up because last week you asked me how far the initial Olympians in the first three Olympics uh, actually ran and I had no idea and so I did quiz Andrew on this and it was it actually changed because back way back in 1912 when they first held the cross country in the Olympics and then cross country as a sport it wasn't quite mature enough to have formalised distances and, you know, competitions as such. So it was all a bit over the place, but it was around about 10 and a half to 12 kilometres over the three different Olympics.
0: Okay, so that's pretty Ooh. similar distance to the, the World Cross-Country Yeah,
1: very similar. Oh. But um, a couple of really interesting things is we touch on the potential of the Olympics, uh, sorry, cross-country making a return in the Olympics. And Andrew oh. and I talk uh, quite in detail about that. And that's something that he's incredibly passionate uh, about and advocating for very heavily Excellent. and we also well, now
0: we're talking about it on this podcast yeah. it's bound to happen
1: <laughs> well exactly and the other thing that we talk about actually is the world cross-country championships and then you know although not necessarily something that um, you know, really targets some of our listeners with the sort of the elite end but we chat a little bit about a bit of its demise and you know where it's heading and Andrew's got a little bit of a interest or actually a very big interest interest in that and obviously with it being held in Australia in the next a mm. uh, couple of years. We touch on that too, and that, that was—is
0: he coming out?
1: <laughs> well, well, uh, and you will have to listen. But he said that he would, and I have volunteered you and I to race him. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we might get—we might get flogged because uh, he's a pretty handy runner, isn't he?
1: Well, he called himself a mid-packer as well. But from memory, I think he said he's five-k time was maybe around seventeen-ish minutes. So he is a little bit quicker than you. He's a lot quicker than you and I at the moment. Moment, but mm-hmm. um look we've got two years to bridge that gap
0: <laughs> <laughs> i'm a bit worried that i might be just going backwards in that time but anyway <laughs> we'll see what we can do
1: oh dear but anyway it was a really fun chat worth a listen if you're you know a cross-country advocate or even someone who's just curious as to really how a sport evolved that's still in existence you know over 200 years later
0: fantastic well do you want to tell me about what you've been doing over the last week
1: yeah i will and i'm actually here in Melbourne, and isn't it funny that you know we were no more than ten kilometres away from each other, but just our schedules didn't enable us to physically catch up face to face. So yeah,
0: we were we were poles apart. I don't think there was any chance that we were going to catch up.
1: Yeah, it's just one of those things. So down here in Australia, we had Easter and then Anzac Day, and so that sort of culminated this giant sort of ten days of holidays. I think they were coining it three for ten. You take three days of annual leave, and you get ten days off. So I cashed in the special deal of three for 10 and uh, found myself here in in Melbourne. And I'd said last week that I I wanted to take this time of not working and really think about my um, half marathon plan heading into Gold Coast. So I sat down and I'll talk about that in a minute. I'll, I'll just tell you what I've been doing this week. It's been... It's been odd this week so I've still been trying to protect the knee my runner's knee a little bit but I'm actually finding that I'm getting a lot of soreness and a lot of issues back in that hip where it originally mm. started to hurt when I initially had my hip surgery about 10 years ago. So I've actually pulled out my, all of my old rehab exercises and anyone that's had an injury knows just how mind-numbing rehab exercises are. But the unfortunate thing about them is they just work. <laughs> and you know, there's nothing exciting about you know, sitting there doing clams and just tiny little lift your leg off the ground. <laughs> it doesn't look very glamorous or seem like you're doing really much at all. But it's so specific and targets the area. And I've been feeling like that's been helping quite a lot. And I've managed to get out. Uh, actually, managed to do 66 k's this week. I, um, I don't even know where that came from. I, I, I've you know those weeks where you don't really feel like you've done a lot, but yeah you stop and you look back and you think oh i actually did okay so for me that was one of those weeks but i'm i'm really struggling on the consecutive longer runs and this is what yeah. i want to talk to you when i break apart this half marathon plan i'm able to get out volume in a day but i'm really struggling to make it consecutive so i'm able to do you know say like a 5 or 6k warm up no issues, stretches, maybe a few drills, go and do like a a 5K um, session and then I can follow up with maybe a 4K cool down. And I'm not getting into the danger zone. But today I did 12Ks um, consecutively. I actually had to stop a couple of times to stretch out the hip. It was just really grumbly. So I'm a bit frustrated by it. But at the same time, the reality is I need to not do these really long runs until it's pretty much 100% 100% fixed and continue with these tedious exercises
0: now now your hip was a bit grumbly today but didn't you run a 19 minute park run yesterday
1: <laughs> yes <laughs> so my weight and,
0: and and before you um, tell me about that like how in general do you think you've recovered from from the half and have you got all of the general soreness out of your legs do from know, that?
1: I actually have recovered like I'm feeling well Actually, good question. I'm going to re- rewind that. This week, I have felt so incredibly tired, but anybody that has a full time job, you know, two kids under five, and, you know, attempting to train um, at some sort of level will realize that the minute that you stop all of that, and it's like that um, they talk about when you go on a holiday, you get sick. Yeah. You're finally stopping. So that was pretty much my week. And, I've just felt so exhausted and it was simply just because we'd, we'd stopped and actually allowed ourselves to have a bit of a rest. So it was a real effort to force myself out to do some of these training sessions. But when I was actually out there, I was feeling amazing. It was actually very effortless. So. From that perspective, I think I've recovered. like my legs had spring in them uh, on Tuesday, I did a ten k pickup run, I was feeling really tired, and left it to the last minute and decided to do two laps of Albert Park Lake. and I just I started off really slowly. I was five thirteen pace and worked my way down to four ten pace and just felt like I was gliding along. And then I did a set of 400s on Thursday on Albert Park um, Lake as well. So for those who don't know Albert Park Lake, there's a beautiful running track around the outside, but it's would you say that it's granite? What, what's the surface? Uh? Yeah,
0: I think it's granite sand.
1: It's like a granite sand, so it's slippery. You know, if you're trying to run at pace, it's it's not a great solid surface like the concrete or if you were running on the athletics track. But I managed to run between eighty-two and eighty-four seconds for six by four hundreds. and again, it just felt really good. So you know. The legs are ticking over. I was just tired from life in general, to be honest. So, so might have,
0: you might have had a bit of um, running on adrenaline and then when you stopped, yeah. adrenaline stops and that's where you feel that kind of exhaustion.
1: I think that's exactly it. So we've taken it pretty easy. We've tried to avoid you know what we normally do when we come to Melbourne with a million catch-ups of family and friends. But then I did, I, I headed out to park around the Albert Park park run on Saturday morning and it (laughs) Melbourne was beautiful up until Friday where this I don't know Cold front turned up like it was freezing
0: on. It was. It really was freezing on Friday.
1: Oh my gosh, it was so cold, and I had promised myself and a couple of training buddies in Sydney that this year I was going to be a different Lisa. Training in winter, I was going to be positive. I wasn't going to grumble about the cold, and I was really going to try and change my mindset and embrace the the chilly weather. So I went out and did my warm up for park run, and I was feeling pretty flat. I did some strides, and I was feeling okay, and I just run in a singlet and some long leggings and it was seven degrees So I was trying my positive brave face again and, and we took off and I just i just ran to heart rate again. I was monitoring. I didn't want it to go over 160. I really wanted it to be around 150. I think in the end it was 155 average and ran the first uh, 2K. So I ran a 342, a 347 and then we turned the corner and, again, anyone that knows Albert Park Lake, if it's windy, you're in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> and uh Just hit this headwind. It was freezing. It was coming off the lake. And I honestly turned into an ice cube. (laughs) I just, I was so frozen cold. And then at that stage, I didn't care less about how fast I was running. I was just, I'd lost feeling in my hands. My legs started to seize up. I think I ran a 358 and then another 358. And then when we got out of the wind to the, the end, I finished in a 342. So all up, it was a 1905. 5, so 349 average, which I was wrapped about to be honest.
0: Yeah, um, it's a very good time. But you must have finished pretty high up in the ladies.
1: I think I won um, it, actually. So. You won
0: the ladies. No, yeah. Well done.
1: <laughs> you, go
0: on, you go on the honour roll for winners at Albert Park. <laughs> but
1: I think it might have been a bit of a weekday. Or actually, maybe the times were just slow because it was so windy. Let's go with mm-hmm. that. <laughs> but there was over 500 runners, so I think they had one of their biggest turnouts there. A fantastic park run, actually. Um, I think we've mentioned it before. It's just a beautiful location, uh, you know, always the volunteers are amazing and just a really great course just one lap no crazy turns you do have the wind at times but it was really fun and I was just I was really happy um I think I would have liked to have seen an 18 in front of the time.
0: You probably would have if it hadn't been windy.
1: Well, and that's it. So because I didn't have my splits on, I just had the heart rate and I saw, you know, that the average was 155. So I was really pleased about that. And when I sat down and looked at my splits later and I I saw that I effectively dropped sort of 10 to 15 seconds in those two kilometres, I thought, well, that's probably where the, you know, I lost my six seconds to go sub-19. So That's put me in a bit of a positive frame of mind because I finished with heaps of I don't know, I just, I felt good. I didn't feel cooked or anything when I finished. So, but interesting, hey, like my heart rate doing 349 average versus, you know, two weeks ago, Canberra half marathon, where within the first 500 meters, it was 175. Mm. So I think that, you know, it's another clear message for me and I guess for the listeners as well, that, you know, my body has been really tired this week, been sleeping a lot and you just really can't escape life stresses sometimes, can you?
0: definitely can't. So just on, on your heart rate, and look, I've forgotten to harass you about this for a while. Like what what's going on? Because we've still haven't got
2: yeah. a clear
0: idea of what's been going on with your heart rate spiking.
1: No, well, it's Where's been... Uh, so I have sent off a couple of emails to the cardiologist and actually haven't heard back. So I'm not really sure what's going on there. And so I actually um, have been... Probably- maybe,
0: maybe he doesn't know and he doesn't want to admit what, that he doesn't know what's going on
1: i'm not sure it's it's very peculiar so my next thing to do is to call the receptionist to just make sure that i can at least get in touch but i've actually found um, a sports sort of specialist and the system here in australia is you need a referral from a a gp Mm. i've actually had uh, three appointments booked with my GP um, and he unfortunately is actually really unwell so we had to reschedule them three times so it's actually just a, a case of me picking up the phone and calling the original cardiologist just to see where my emails have disappeared to and to just start to seek out that sort of second opinion and I really want to get on top of it and get it fixed before the, na- before the next track season I know that I'm not really going to suffer you know, a lot of these issues moving into this cross-country. Country and road because I'm not training at that threshold. But as I've mentioned before, these sorts of things sometimes are a bit of trial and error and investigation. So it's not a simple go to the doctor's, get a script and you're fixed in two weeks Sometimes a, a twelve-month journey of, you know, poking, prodding, and just finding out what's going on.
0: Sounds good. And you off to see your amazing physio about your hip and knee.
1: Oh, so I had another. Well, I had an appointment. Unfortunately, I didn't realise that we'd be travelling home on the same day as uh, that appointment. So I have to reschedule, which is a bit of a bummer. I actually was meant to see her tomorrow because I do need to find out what's going on with this hip. I don't know if it's locked. Uh, I don't know if I've yeah. got. I don't know what I've got so I'm look I'm I feel like I'm a bit of a, a wounded warrior where I'm able to get myself sort of you know going but I've got quite a lot of band-aids on me
0: mm, watch this space
1: watch this space so I've got a 10k coming up this week and I initially sort of had at the start of the year penned in that I would like to run a 36 something for it um I'm not in that shape I just I don't really know what's going on like I'm feeling fit, but I just can't seem to pull it all together, if that makes mm. sense.
0: I think your strategy of just running to heart rate might be the way to go for your 10k as well. Seems to have worked well in those couple of 5k's where you just had your heart rate monitor on.
1: Yeah, well, and look, in fairness, I was pretty happy with my run yesterday and uh, in those sort of windy-ish conditions. So yeah, I well, we'll just we'll just see what goes, what happens, but feeling pretty good. So 66k's, knees probably about mm, 70% happy and I'm feeling quite rested. Very good. Mm. <laughs> Can the same be said for
0: you yeah no not really not really uh, so as I mentioned I've um, started a, a new job and it's not so much the new job actually there's a fair bit of commuting involved yeah uh, about two hours each day a day so that's proving to be somewhat taxing although as you mentioned we've had this luxurious period of multiple public holidays through Easter and Anzac Day so my first two weeks of the job have actually only involved working two days (laughs) each week (laughs) so I've, I've been there for two weeks and only worked four days which is a little bit odd but it has actually probably allowed me just to you know play around with trying to find the best way to commute and have a, a slightly more gentle introduction into back into the workforce. So, yeah, no, I'm feeling okay. And look, I, the reason I asked you about the half was I found, like I, had, I think I had about three days off after, after the half and then just started jogging again, which meant mm. last week I did about 26Ks. I've only been running easy and, and aerobic, but I, I had noticed that, yeah, my quads and hamstrings were still a bit banged up from the half, and that's probably... Only really disappeared today, and Mm. yeah, I found last time it took two weeks to get over it completely, and I feel like it's probably taken about two weeks just to get all of that,
1: yeah, um, out of the legs as well. I look, I agree. I sometimes am pretty banged up after the half. I know last year when I did Gold Coast, I was no good for a couple of weeks, but I think this year because my knee went, so I wasn't able to. Fully give it a hundred percent. I guess I was running, you know, quite within myself towards the end. But even as we sort of mentioned last week, seeing that heart rate early and knowing that something wasn't right. Just running maybe at kind of seventy-five percent rather than a hundred percent, I think has really saved me, and obviously hasn't really saved you. But <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, look, it hasn't been uh, in fairness, it hasn't been bad. But I was just sort of aware of it, and you know, every easy run I did the next day, it would be slightly less. But um, I'd sort of find about you know four or five k's into runs that I just sort of feel a little bit of little bit of soreness still in the legs. But that has now gone but I, I did a good block of training over that easter break because i had five days so i did five days of consecutive running which was nice lots of running out in the forest stuff at the dalesford high performance center mm. which has been magnificent so I had a really nice run out there this morning of about an hour and 15 minutes maybe didn't cover a huge amount of kilometers because of the amount of climbing inv- involved in the the loops that I'm doing through the forest at the moment so it's sort of like the first 7 or 8k's are basically all uphill. Yes, um, I've run that hill. Yeah. You are not lying. <laughs> no, it's it's uh it's Pretty taxing, which basically means that yeah, you're putting in a reasonable amount of effort to run six minute kilometre pace, or even slightly slower than that. And you know, I, th- I think that's actually good because it's probably fairly easy on the body in a way. Um, but you've got to run still fairly strongly to get up the hills, so it's a it's a pretty good workout. Yeah, enjoyed the rolling hills, enjoyed seeing the wallabies and the kangaroos, and hearing the birds and smelling the earth and the eucalyptus. So it's it's re- it's been a quite a soothing antidote to uh, <laughs> being back in the uh, in the workforce and doing all of this commuting and being surrounded by people and being squashed on trams and trains and whatnot. Oh, gosh, so-
1: heaven help Brian when he does five days in a row. <laughs> oh, I
0: know, yeah. I'm not sure what I'm going to be like at the end of next week. But anyway, look, I, look, I have been sort of reevaluating my running goals a little bit for this season because of the new job and the commuting so I think it was only sensible that I kind of just reflect on how am I actually going to feel and what kind of training am I going to be able to do and am I going to you know in the the case of a run that's coming up in Melbourne that I was sort of planning on doing I don't think I'm going to do that anymore because driving back to Melbourne um, after doing a week of commuting to Melbourne is actually not really that appealing and I probably really need the rest on the weekends Mm -hmm. rather than kind of flogging myself to try and participate or achieve sort of arbitrary goals that really aren't that important. And and look, I spent, as I told you, um, I spent about th- three months landing this job, so I kind of want to do a good job of it now that I'm there, so I've got to sort of prioritise this sort of career move over over my my running goals which you know as mentioned are f- a fairly modest and arbitrary <laughs> and and really not that important in the scheme yeah. of things so
1: yeah look I find starting a new job actually quite stressful because hmm. you know everything is new so your mind is constantly taking in you know new environments even just working out whether you know go to go to the bathroom or where to get your lunch from you you're having to relearn all those sorts of things so i think um don't underestimate just how stressful and exhausting that is
0: no i'm not and yeah there's a there's Pretty much a, a high cognitive load in everything doing everything you do, as as mentioned. So yeah, even things like new computer, new operating system yeah, that you yeah. haven't used before. or you've got to, there's just slightly different ways of doing things. Um, new new software packages that you haven't used before. So mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, all of that adds a little bit of extra uh, energy that you need to burn to learn all of that plus do what you're being paid to do when you're there. So so yeah, I'll probably run. It's going to be. I'm, I'm still planning on doing lots of cross-country races, but I'll probably focus on the ones that are easier to get to and maybe do more of the local ones over the next few weeks rather than I'll probably do some of the ones in Melbourne, but not all of them. And, and look, luckily there is, for the Athletics Victoria season, there's a run coming up the start of July, which is in fairly close to here. So that's probably only like a a half-hour drive, which is going to be good. And there's also the lap of Lake Wenderee coming up as part of the local... Ballarat Regional Athletic Centre, the BRAC races. So that's mm. all the Ballarat clubs competing against each other. That's a so very
1: well-known and popular race, though. I think it it's is. got an honour roll of the who's who's of it, Australian it, distance running. It,
0: it does, yes. And, uh, yeah, lot, some pretty crazy times recorded by... A number of luminaries in the sport. So, yeah, there'd be some good races for me to do local as well as hopefully get to the odd one up in Melbourne. So, yeah, a little bit of re-evaluation of goals. That's a long way of saying this week I managed to get 40, 42Ks out. I did 26 last week and, yeah, we'll see what this next week of five days of work and commuting will be able to yield. I actually just ordered myself a head torch because I feel like I'm going to be getting out for a couple of fairly early runs in the morning. So a uh, new head torch, got a few head torches, but I thought I'd better get myself a nice new one with a nice bright light. And Can
1: I actually um, talk about that for a second? Yep. So I'm not a fan of the head torch, but mm-hmm. I, just, I don't even know the brand of this light that I use. It is amazing. I look like, what's that superhero with a flashlight in their chest? I think it's Iron Man.
0: <laughs> Iron Man.
1: <laughs> so I look like Iron Man because you put this contraption on and you have this flashlight that sort of sits at your sternum and then there's um, a red one that sort of flashes at the back but it is amazing because the way that it straps onto your body it doesn't move I find those head torches kind of bob up and down and uh, the light makes me get a bit dizzy and This one is amazing. I'll, I'll try and find what brand it is, and maybe post it yeah. up on our socials. It e- has,
0: email me a link to that. That sounds yeah,
1: good. Revolutionary. So one of the girls who's like a, a mad, avid hiker in the group um, got us onto them. I've never looked back. I've had it for two years now. I'd never had mm. a head torch again, actually.
0: All yeah, right. Okay. Mm. Well, I wish you'd told me that before I ordered <laughs> my head
1: torch. <laughs> maybe there's a return policy, but... <laughs> Um if you want to be like Iron Man, uh get yep. this get this chest one, I'll send you the details. <laughs> yeah,
0: I'd like to be like Iron Man, that'd be cool. Might make me run faster.
1: Oh, I feel fast when I have it on Not sure if I run yeah. fast
0: <laughs> Very good, very good And other stuff I've been doing is basically just being trying to get into the gym Which I've managed to do a couple of times over the last week And look at the moment with how I'm feeling I've just they've been kind of more like maintenancey kind of gym sessions So yeah. not pushing too hard Not trying to break any lifting records Just sort of going through the motions to let the body recover Once you've kind of got to a level It's a lot easier to maintain it So I'll be definitely trying to keep up my gym Through this next period of slightly busy. Work,
1: yeah. Um, Look, one that's one thing I've let go this week traveling. And I'm just going to say that I was way too lazy to go and source out a gym. There's probably about 10 within you know a stone's throw from me, just didn't have the brain capacity to actually go and
0: sort it out. It's
1: sorted out. So I've apart from my boring rehab exercises, I haven't done anything. So I think that's probably why the hips and the knees a bit grumbly too, because it does love the gym,
0: definitely does. So yeah, you better get back into that. Now, before we talk about what's coming up tell me about jt because he
1: topped uh, cop- yes. a medal
0: at the, uh, yeah. the the mature person's australian championships is that right?
1: is. <laughs> so our, our sort of sole purpose of coming down to melbourne was the australian masters track and field championships are actually on this weekend and given he's gone from no non-runner to basically a hero within, uh, you know, twelve short weeks, yep. <laughs> a bunch of actually members from our club were coming down here. But it, it was a bit bittersweet, actually. It uh, the, the conditions were really tough. Um, it's really cold. It's very very windy, and he did manage to get a bronze medal in the fifteen hundred meters. But it was actually the slowest time he's ever run four thirty three.
0: Still, still pretty good going. And if it's windy, like you know, yeah, y-
1: yeah, y-
0: y- it's going to slow you down, so yeah. condition, conditions are everything. Uh,
1: look, I'm, I'm sure if there was a survey across most of the participants over the weekend, I don't think there would have been many PBs recorded because they were really quite challenging conditions. And uh, he did the 5,000 metres this morning, but just he just was not – His head just wasn't in the game finished fourth. But I tell you what, if there is one inspiring place to go, I think it is a Masters Athletics Championships because, look, Looking at the physiques and the athleticism of some of these athletes, I can only hope that I am, you know, even half the ability and and looking as amazing as some of these athletes are. There was a lady who was in the 70-year age group today doing a 200-metre sprint. She was was told she was 74. I could not stop staring at her legs. She looked amazing. (laughs) She was toned. She was trimmed. She was terrific. She did 34 seconds.
0: Wow. I reckon I'd struggle to do 34 seconds.
1: I don't think I could do that. She's 74 years of age. So, you know, it's one of those things that um, we've spoken about before and we've had Keith Bateman on the show, you know, Mm. can you get faster as you age? And... I just—they were so inspiring. So you know, I'm—I've just turned thirty-five, and I was looking at some of these runners going. You know what? I think I'll—I'll I'll keep at it.
0: Keep it. Going at a long it. game. <laughs> I like it. Well, you've mentioned you're doing a ten k this week. Anything else exciting coming up?
1: Well, I've. Sort of. Do you want to just quickly talk about my half marathon training? For sure, lock? let's do it. Yep. I, I won't go into a great deal because I've really just penned something quite um, brief. And I mentioned that maybe I might be a bit unconventional, and you got quite excited about that. <laughs> yep. So. I'm going to have to cut back the volume and I'm I'm keen to hear your thoughts on this and maybe any listeners who have approached a half marathon on less volume and when i by what I mean by volume is I'm probably still going to get the amount of Ks totaled in a week, but it's going to be a lot of short runs. I just can't risk going out and doing, you know, a twenty or twenty-five kilometer run or a two hour run because it just I just keep getting into trouble in that zone. And I really just want to get to that start line, actually, basically my body in as as healthy state as it can. So I'm structuring my weeks that I've got um, two weeks up, one week down. And so the up weeks range between sort of 70 to 85 Ks. Some of those actually, I've got two days or I've got double days, but it's, you know, it's going to be like a 10 K run and then an 8 K run. I'm finding I'm not getting into trouble doing that. I'm not sore. It's sort of when I hit that 17 to 20k mark, it just, my hip just is really unhappy. So I'm going to approach it with the same amount of kilometers just, you know, broken up. I don't know how I'm going to go. You know, I might find that I haven't got the strength in the back end of the race, but I sort of counter that argument with if my knee goes I don't, it doesn't matter how strong or fit I am; mm-hmm. I actually can't run. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of the the main focus to it. I'm going to do two sessions a week still. So my my Tuesday and my Thursday that I do, and then on sort of every third Sunday, I'm actually going to jump in with the boys. There's a at eight o'clock every Sunday, a group of guys meet, and they run about and. Um, around 440 pace and they do kick it down to sort of about 420 pace Mm -hmm. and I'm going to jump in with them for say maybe 12 k's of the run so I end up doing a it's actually effectively my third session of the week as a bit of a you know a tempo-ish sort of run.
0: That's like a sort of a marathon pace tempo.
1: Yeah pretty much so I'm hoping that doing that will you know instead of like just always the long slow Sunday long run will give me that strength that I'm going to be lacking in you know doing those longer runs which I know people say are just so important and they are so important for Mm. trying to do a
0: so you're going to you're going to cap your long run at 90 minutes?
1: Yes, yeah, I will not run over 90 minutes.
0: Okay. I think that's um, a good idea.
1: Yeah, and I've got a couple of weeks where I'm I'm doing two in the row, but I've got an asterisk next to the second week because it will all be depending on what happens and how I feel after that first week. So, I've thrown a bit of Brian flexibility and yeah, uncertainty in the program.
0: You're definitely <laughs> going to have to have that. So, tell me about your threshold work that you're going to do in this block because one of the things I've been thinking about is for the half especially like probably doing some sort of longer threshold sessions or and, and especially with your knee you could do some longer Well, not long, but like blocks of threshold and then have a walk and a stretch and a jog and then do another block and then maybe do another block, that kind of thing. Yeah,
1: I'm glad you asked me that, actually, because when I looked back sort of through my training last year, I actually think that was the biggest obvious thing that was missing from the program. And if I think about the one thing that I hate doing, it's thresholds. And, you know, it's I've done it before and I have actually gotten quite fit from it. Surprise, surprise. Yeah. And I'm actually going to alternate. So my Thursday track session, you know, I can run track repeats pretty much without any issue. It's pretty much bread and butter and what I've grown up on and I really enjoy it. I think I need to stop just going and doing that every Thursday and starting to throw in some thresholds. So there's a group that actually do some time trialling sort of every second or third Thursday down at the track. I'm going to jump in with them and they do sort of 5K. So I might sometimes maybe do a 3K. I might do the full 5K with them. And that,
0: is that on the track, is it? So it
1: is on the track. Um, it's just too dark at the moment yeah, to do it. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, like I, I don't get down to training until 6.30 at night and I'm not a big fan of running in the middle of a park on my own yep.
2: Yep.
1: <laughs> in yep. the night time. So, fair enough. Yeah, so I'm a bit restricted by the daylight. So every sort of second or third week I, I might throw mm-hmm. that in because it's a gaping hole in my
0: program. That could be the thing that gives you that bit of extra fitness to be able to run a bit faster and yeah ITB seem to be yeah it's almost like the the slower you go the worse it gets so oh, if you can if you can stay yeah. stay up into that sort of four minute k pace or lower through your half um, you might actually be moving a little bit better your biomechanics might be better and that might help your hip and knee a little yeah, bit yeah
1: it's interesting I'm curious to hear you know how some of the listeners who suffer from this how they feel but I agree with you so the 5k that I did on Saturday at the park run not a single issue you wouldn't even know that I have had an issue I don't feel it at all but you know the minute I move into that sort of slower ploddy type of movement it just it's obviously just that the pattern that I'm running in that it's something's not firing or is not working properly so yeah look the club that I train with or the group I train with they do a lot of sort of tempos and thresholds on a Saturday but I've mentioned before. I honestly, just I can't do three sessions a week. I find mm. myself just – I bury myself. It's a waste of time. I'm just what too a, tired.
0: So you, you, couldn't, you couldn't perhaps drop one of the midweek sessions and do the threshold on the Saturday?
1: Oh, uh, the- Possibly. Um, It is a bit of a juggle, though, with uh, who gets what time to train in our household. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: Yeah. (laughs) totally. But
1: I have thought about that too. But I'm going to try this on the Thursday because I sort of get a bit of a time slot on Thursday to go to training, jump in with this other group that is doing the time trials and I can maybe jump off the back of, you know, there's usually a few guys going around in 20 minutes or just under.
0: Yeah, yeah, Um, Perfect.
1: and and jump off the back of them so yeah look it's it's 10 weeks to go we'll see how we go with some of this faster running double days and not as long runs and who knows miracles may happen
0: look i think it'd be possible to run a pretty good time off that kind of approach but yeah you're just gonna to have to listen to your body
1: very much so and have you made a decision about Gold Coast
0: yes I'm not doing it okay. <laughs> not doing anything there
1: okay good chat
0: yeah <laughs> yeah that's an easy decision it's just yeah I've got too much going on and that's too far to go for something that I won't be well prepared for so um, mm. I think it's better for me to just stick local and just try and enjoy my running so yeah for the for the week coming up, I'm, I've am i just got to try and get a few runs out during the week. So, we'll see how I go with that. If I can get two or three runs out during the week, that'll be good. And then I'll be Mr. Weekend Warrior.
1: Yeah. Bang,
0: banging out some miles next weekend.
1: Well, I'm a little bit nervous in thinking about our chat next week. You'll be five days after commuting and full-time <laughs> work. What what type of Brian will we get next week?
0: Well, we'll see. It could be a therapy session. <laughs> <laughs> That's nah, all good. Well, like I reckon we should get out of here because we both want to go and watch some London Marathon action, which is about to start streaming, I think. Yeah,
1: and I've got dumplings to go and devour. So uh, Very good. London Marathon and dumplings, it sounds like the perfect Sunday afternoon for me.
0: It does. All right, you have been listening to the Running Technique Tips podcast with Brian Martin and Lisa Biffin. Catch you next week. <laughs>
1: Okay, and today I am joined by a special guest, uh, Andrew Hutchinson, who wrote The Complete History of Cross-Country Running, and I want to welcome Andrew to the podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. Oh, no worries. Well, as Brian and I have been talking about over the past uh, two or three weeks, we're delving into cross-country running and because it's heading into the Australian winter season, and one of the things that we were both interested in was to learn a little bit more about the history of cross-country running, and I have been running cross-country since I was in primary school, and I actually had to admit that I knew nothing about its origins, And then I came across your book and have been completely blown away. So can you tell me just a little bit about your history and a bit of an introduction to
2: yourself? Sure, absolutely. So, I grew up in the United States in California on the West Coast in the Bay Area, and from a young age I was running frequently in holiday races and 5Ks and the like, but I was never a premier athlete, was never an elite athlete, but I enjoyed running and I grew up with it, and I participated in secondary school in cross country for the first time. Really liked it. I was a bit of a late bloomer, didn't break 5 minutes in the mile till I was about 17 or 18 years old, and then from From there, went and ran, ran in college in Chicago in the Midwest in the United States and ran cross-country there all four seasons, and really fell in love with the sport from that point on. When I came back home, I decided to become a, a teacher, and uh, became a history teacher, and ended up coaching as a side effect, and built up a team of runners, athletes, uh, secondary school children, and ended up wanting to incorporate a little bit of history into their season yearbook. From there, I went online to poke around and find out what I could find out, and was pretty shocked that I couldn't find out very much. And yeah. so as part of my graduate school training, I took that liberty to to go to university, open a few books, start perusing the archives, and was really surprised at what I found.
1: Yeah, I actually read somewhere, and correct me if this is wrong, that you had quoted that when you did start looking around, you came across about three lines in Wikipedia of the cross-country history, and that was it.
2: Exactly. And and there were a few enthusiast websites, and they all had conflicting information and conflicting stories that didn't agree with each other and from there i was totally hooked because in any time in history you find that information out that isn't in agreement it raises a few eyebrows
1: so are you a historian or you're a teacher who's just really had a passion and delve into the, the writing of this book.
2: It, that's a great question. I, I was trained formally as a, as a philosophy major in my undergrad at undergraduate studies and from there I, I pursued a master of Liberal, Liberal arts at Stanford in Palo Alto. but I was never formally trained as a historian. I've just always been avidly curious and avidly passionate about history and getting as many angles as possible and getting as many stories as possible. And so I felt like as a historian I was more of a storyteller than I was an archivist or a statistician or something of that nature Hmm. but cross-country as a passion of mine really made sense in that respect so
1: the actual the book itself so the complete history of cross-country running did you always intend to pen that book or just because of this interest of wanting to learn more about the history you started to just investigate how did it all come about
2: well uh as I gathered information, I put it into chronological order, and I, I essentially got all of the major highlights that I was interested in that I think most people know about, right? The running boom in the 1970s, a few of the, you know, kind of Cold War runners from the 1950s, a few of the turn of the century athletes whose names, you know, registered in my memory. And of Mm -hmm. course, went as far back as I could to find out exactly where the sport started from. And with those kind of major peaks, I filled in the valleys along the way, and I kept everything in kind of chronological order, with the intent of making it a a brief history, not necessarily (laughs) a complete history. And so from there, I I understood that, you know, once everything was done and and put together, that I really couldn't stop filling in the gaps. And from there, it really became a passionate pursuit. And it just was so compelling that I, I found myself just moved to write the book out of necessity.
1: Yeah, it's funny you say that about, you know, we all know these key parts in, I guess, modern running times. Because when Brian and I started to discuss the history, and I thought about it myself, you know, we know a lot about the history of the Olympics. And know lots of stats around track runners, but I genuinely had really limited knowledge on cross country. And when I sat down to read your book, I reckon I knew not even 10% of the information that you had in the book. So you've done an amazing job on that. And I want to delve into that now and really the origins and, and where it began and, you know, if you can take us back right to the beginning.
2: Sure. So so what's, what's fascinating about the story of cross-country running as a sport was that it originated almost exactly 200 years ago. And the mm-hmm. very first record of what became cross-country running appeared in schoolboy journals that were kept in academies across England at the turn of the century in the early 1800s. And 1819 is generally seen as being the very first record of any sort of formal paper chase, what they considered mm. to be the forebearer of cross-country running. They called this sport hare and hounds, and it involved chasing through the woods at breakneck speeds, leaving a trail of shredded paper so that other schoolboys could follow the trail, get lost on purpose, and eventually find themselves deep in the woods when the paper ran out. And once the Paper ran out, they all yeah. printed back to the schoolhouse and they timed the entire event, and sometimes prizes were given for the first finishers. And this entire event was basically born out of imitation. And so at the turn of the turn of the century, back about a hundred years prior, horse, steeple chases, chases on horseback with hounds, and fox hunts of that nature were, were imitated by the younger class of elite schoolboys, and that's where Hare and Hound running by foot really took off. Isn't it crazy?
1: And so when you say, you know, this paper chase, I was trying to picture it in my head when I was reading through the book, and was it literally just, you know, like pieces of A4 paper torn into shreds and they just left them randomly throughout the woods?
2: Yes, I mean, it really was kind of like that. In fact, there's evidence that at some stage – a very reputable paper chase took place when they shredded up a copy of the Latin Primer textbook of a notoriously grouchy school administrator who cracked down on paper chasing. And so in retaliation, they they shredded his textbook up into tiny little pieces of paper. And there's little bits and pieces of history that come about because of the transient nature of shredded paper on a pathway, which is to say the very first record of a formal championship conducted by club teams about a generation or two later after the first event was recorded involved a paper chase in the rain and it it was essentially washed out. The very first recorded cross-country championship was not run and not scored formally because no one could find the actual path (laughs) with the paper washed away.
1: So when was this around 1819, 1820s?
2: Well, the very first record of the race was in 1819, but 1876 was essentially the first championship run in England of any sort of notorious adult gentleman and amateur standing that was of, of note. And it took about a generation or two for these schoolboys to grow up and recognize that cross country had, you know, running through the woods had a lot of wonderful benefits for physiology.
1: And how did it go from being somewhat of like a, a fun imitation schoolboys game into like an organized type of event?
2: Well, for the same reasons that we love the sport today, it's an awful lot of fun to drink with your friends, drink with your (laughs) mates, run through the mud, get dirty, get wet, and enjoy the romp through the woods, it was actually born out of a movement of leisure time activity that sprouted because of the Industrial Revolution and urban expansion in the Western world. So during the 1800s, there was economic classes that were born out of tradesmen, working class uh, gentlemen, and of course, the upper classes, which had more leisure time to spend. And so you see a lot of these sports, tennis and lawn bowling and croquet and polo and rowing, sprout yeah. out of this movement. And cross country was a byproduct of that. Mm. In the growing season, in the off season, these, you know, uh, fully grown schoolboys uh, brought back the game to stay in shape in the winter months, and it became a thing of its own.
1: And so was it mainly like the upper class and the elite that played? Or did cross country running in the beginning?
2: It was effectively a sport that was started by the gentlemen amateur elites, those who had kind of a reputation and the money and the leisure time to spend on it, but it really took hold quickly and remained popular in schools and academies and universities in the Western world. And uh, due to kind of the, the nature of expansion from the British Empire, really landed in such places as America and Canada and Australia and New Zealand around the same time at the turn of the 20th century.
1: And I must admit, I didn't, I didn't, had absolutely no idea that, you know, I guess around the 1880s, 1890s, that it did come to Australia. And I think when you read about something that's pretty- much in your backyard you you know you get a bit excited about it and I must admit seeing that you know in the 1880s it came to New South Wales in Australia and has pretty much run um, since then is you know it's fascinating but also we really do need to get this history out there because as I said at the start for someone who's run for so long I genuinely had absolutely no idea. I love that it also then went to America in about the 1880s as well and the New York Athletic Club was one of the first US clubs to organise. As mates?
2: Correct, correct. So the New York Athletic Club in the United States is one of the most notoriously classic and traditional athletic clubs in America. Mm. And they really took hold in the 1880s as kind of a beacon of sorts for gentlemen to organize and run track and field and, and cross-country meets. And uh, at the time, uh, they started a bit of controversy when they decided to be kind of the forebearers of the sport and put their name on the inaugural Individual cross country championship in America, but a few things came about because of that, and it's an interesting little side note to the story of cross country running as a whole.
1: Yeah, it, it still just blows my mind that it goes back so far. But one of the things that I really like about your book is that you do break it down like, it, literally every ten years, and it's as though every ten years it was evolving and something new and it was expanding. And then I guess you know coming into the 1890s, and that's when the Olympic movement starts to kick off. And um, you know, in your book, you mentioned that the paper chasing is declining, and it's starting to become more formalized racing and formalized distance and competitions. Can you elaborate on that a bit more?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So what kind of sprouted a love of cross-country running was, of course, like I mentioned, all the great things that we take for granted today, the running through the woods and, you know, being with your teammates and running in groups and things like that. But around the turn of the century, the Olympic movement and organization in all respects of running and kind of standardization of all the events that we take for granted today including the marathon, including the 10k, including you know 5ks on the track and things of that nature, even the steeplechase which is kind of an oddity on the track. All of these things developed at the same time and cross country needed rules and formal regulations to, to govern the sport and the forebearers of the Olympic movement brought in cross country running into the 19-teens, the 1912 Olympic Games in, in Stockholm were the first offering of the sport and it was really a fascinating introduction to what at the time was kind of just the beginning stages of what we see today as the the modern olympic games
1: i want to talk about the olympics actually for a little bit and last week actually on the podcast i had done i was starting to read your book and i mentioned to brian that the cross country was in the olympics back in sort of the early initial stages and, again, something that I didn't know. So can you just give us a little bit of a, a background onto when it was in the Olympics and the distances and, and what actually
2: eventuated? Absolutely. So at the turn of the century, England was really the, the first uh, official country to embrace the sport as they had introduced it. And they attempted to organize international competition, but really it didn't take off in any sort of international fashion until well into the 1900s, well into the 20th century. And so at the turn of the century, when this was all starting, England felt that they were the best and the brightest at running, and they were to a certain degree. They tried to do some competitions with France, with Ireland and Scotland and Wales included. And it really wasn't such a performance of cross-country running as it was kind of the early stages of, of developing the sport. And so when they brought it into the Olympics, it was the English that had introduced it, but it was the international community that benefited. And what ended up happening was at the very first running of this event, it wasn't the English that prospered. It was the Swedish and Finnish teams, you know, out of Finland and Sweden and the Nordic nations that really debuted their prowess. And it, it was the flying Finns that made a statement on the course And of course, they were the first benefactors of racing it as an individual sport, but also as a team event where teams scored their top three runners instead of what we see today as the top four or top five or top six. And Mm. so it was a really interesting side note. And of course, once it was in and out of the Olympics, it was only in three editions. But once it was out again, it took a while before other international countries were invited back to the the world championships.
1: And so in the initial Olympics, so 1912 in Stockholm, which first had the Cross
2: country. Do you know how far it was that they actually raced? Brian asked me that last week and I didn't know. <laughs> well, at the time, like I said, it was just beginning to become standardized. And so there wasn't mm. this expectation of, oh, it has to be 10,000 meters, you know, 10 kilometers, and we'll measure it to the, to the yard it really was, I think, 14 and a half kilometers of running outside of the stadium. And it was kind of like, you know, come as you go with uh, these rolling hillsides and kind of brush running and, and roadside running. And and it, it wasn't formally on a cross-country course.
1: And so were they still trying to add in, you know, the elements of water jumps and jumping over hedges? Did they still include that um, in, the, in those Olympics? Or was it just, oh, well, there's the stadium, run around, you know, 12 or 14 kilometers and end?
2: come back in? It was very much rough and tumble. And the European tradition of cross country has always been to include as many hazards as possible. And for that reason, is seen as kind of the forebearer of the uh, obstacle course movement that we see today, the tough mudder movement and things like that. Yeah. And in the Olympics, it was really kind of dangerous. And for the first iteration in 1912, and again in 1920 and 1924, there's great footage and photographs of Pavo Nermi scaling brick walls and running through ditches and hedges. And it it was very much kind of off-road running, very, very extreme. And uh, there's a great story to be told about the 1924 Olympic cross-country event as well.
1: Yeah, well, let's tell it because that was the last time that we've seen cross-country in the Olympics in Paris, 1924.
2: Yes. And we're coming up on the 100th year anniversary of the 24 Games, which is kind of exciting because they're back in Paris in 2024. And so in 1924, they raced, of course, the third edition of the cross-country event. It was the final one on the athletics calendar. And Nermy had been racking up medals left and right along the way, and he was by far probably the fittest distance runner to appear at the Summer Games that year. He raced, and he was one of only 15 finishers in this particular event. It just so happened that they raced this 12-kilometer cross-country course around the stadium in Paris on the hottest day possible. It was extremely hot. It was near 100 degrees Fahrenheit, and it promoted exhaustion and heat stroke, and and runners were, were collapsing left and right. Uh, there were reports of three dead, which is just in- oh insane to me to imagine <laughs> that runners would just die while running cross country. But very exciting. And of course, Nurmi's response to everyone collapsing was to say they they trained poorly. But uh, the footage from that event is is kind of funny to watch because you know you have runners who are breathing noxious fumes of a nearby factory, and of course, running into the wall on their entrance back into the Olympic stadium to finish, and crawling across the finish line, and things that we you know really. Is compelling footage, but promptly brought cross country back into the conversation as something extremely dangerous and taxing on the body and needed to be removed from the Olympics from that point forward. So unfortunately, the most extreme and exciting addition of cross-country running in the Olympics promoted its demise.
1: And so it, was that the, the rationale for excluding it? Did they think that it was too tough or too inhumane to actually continue
2: with? That was a popular decision at the time. And of course, uh, women in, in running and distance running were also a, kind of a caveat note of, of the same period, which is to say everyone was very concerned about the effects of distance running on the body. And so uh, they banned uh, any distance longer than 200 meters for women to run. And it was just quite the unscientific judgments of the time that brought about all this consultation.
1: It was probably well before, you know, a lot of information on nutrition and hydration because, you know, the Commonwealth Games, which I I know that America doesn't compete in, was held in Australia last year and they did the marathon. And I think it got up to nearly 30 degrees. I'm not sure what that is in Fahrenheit, and you know there was a similar. I'm not sure if you've seen the footage, similar footage of the gentleman who was leading it, Callum Hawkins, who uh, collapsed only a couple of kilometers from the finish line because of the heat. But I think you know today we're a lot more well versed in how to compete in in hot conditions.
2: Yes, absolutely, and, and Callum is quite the cross country runner himself, yeah. and uh, it, it wasn't so much a, a bad movement of the time as it was just simply kind of a, a typical understanding of, of danger involved in, in what they were trying to promote with the Olympics. But for that reason, it was never brought back. And so what's interesting is there is is a current discussion of getting cross country back into the Olympic Games. But this is a discussion that's been taking place for 100 years that most people don't know about.
1: I actually um, did listen to you on, I think it was the Hour of History podcast, and you touched on the potential of Cross country making a comeback in the 2024 Olympics in Paris. Is that correct?
2: Yes, yes. There's an ongoing movement with the people who are really involved in the promotion of the sport. It, there is a formal association, the IAAF, which governs cross country running among other track and field and marathon pursuits. And the members of those federations across the world that are part of the IAAF really want to see cross country back into the Olympic Games. Mm. But it's an incredibly difficult promotion. Because Because the council of the International Olympic Committee that makes those decisions has a lot on its plate, obviously getting ready for those games and other sports need consideration as well. So cross-country is in the debate, but we're trying hard to get it to move forward.
1: And is this something that you're involved in? You're part of this um, discussion?
2: Well, I I am very passionate about the sport, and so I'm in in communication with a lot of those Federation members. And, of course, we're all on the right side at the moment to get this sport back into the Olympics, but it takes time, and so it's been an ongoing process. I I don't want to say that I'm Mm. Well, look,
1: I'm certainly (laughs) all for the cross-country in the Olympics. I mean, they've got surfing coming up in Tokyo. Right. Uh, which you know if surfing can be in there surely cross-country can be
2: right right and so i want to say that i'm a, I'm a powerful grass grassroots mover and shaker but I, i'm in no way uh, holding the baton here i really believe strongly that where these sports come from in terms of their popularity and their knowledge is really because the foundation of the sport is well known right? Mm. So for events like surfing and skateboarding and rock climbing, people can see it and fall in love with it, but they also know where it comes from and get excited about its major names and stars and things like that. And in cross country, someone really has dropped the baton when it comes to communicating how rich the history is and how long it is.
1: Do you know, I, I agree 100% with you on that. And I actually am not a rock climber, but i um... Recently watched two movies, Into Thin Air, and there was another gentleman who did a a, a maybe free solo, I think, on rock climbing, and it was just so encapsulating these movies. I I wanted to go back and learn more about it, but, you know, as a cross-country lover, I don't see anything like that coming out and and hitting the movies and hitting
2: mainstream media. Right. And and then that's where the movement came from on my end to say, you know what, I might as well write the book. Um, Prior to doing the history book, actually, I I had just for the benefit of sharing with the general public, put together a few montages uh, called the Cross Country Running Anthology. That was kind of the preview to the story of Cross Country for me because it involved gathering a lot of these epic finishes and starts and races and compiling them into this slideshow of sorts that I put on YouTube. And then this was going back all the way to 2012. And so all of this, all of this momentum that I generated, I felt like needed to be put to good use. And so hopefully, hopefully cross-country running will return to the Olympics. And uh, there's a lot of good conversations happening on that front.
1: Oh, look, I hope it does. And um, you'll have to give me the links for those and we can pop them up on our socials and in the show notes as well. So people can have a look. We can spread the love for cross-country or around the world.
2: Yes, yes. And, and and for all those runners who are out there, really, it, all it takes is just to lace up your shoes and go for it. And so mm. I'm really passionate about that. And, and I love the kinds of conversations you guys have been having on your show.
1: That's actually one of the things and the reasons why I love running too, is just the absolute simplicity of it. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why you see movements like park run, which I know over the world is literally going from strength to strength. And because it's as simple as you can can do it anywhere, anytime, any place over the world. And, you know, it's actually very accessible to countries that aren't as as well off as some of Western um, cultures. So it breaks down a lot of barriers.
2: Absolutely. And, and, you know, cross country is kind of the great cousin of the park run. And I love seeing crowds come out and try it for the first time and really fall in love with it because there is a lot to love about it.
1: There really is. But just back on um, some of the history. So when I was reading through your book, I was actually quite surprised to see that far back as the 1920s, the African nations were involved in cross country because my perception of the African nations is it's only been, you know, maybe in the past 30, years where they've really risen to prominence. But um, can you touch a little bit on how they sort of joined to cross-country, but it wasn't really the meteoric rise as we know the African nations today?
2: Right, well you know, two points on the history of the African dominance in cross-country. The first being that, you know, the British were really the messengers of the sport to the area in Northern Africa and Eastern Africa during the turn of the century period of colonization. The Germans and the Belgians as well had some influence And they brought with them a lot of the westernized sports that we know today, games like uh, soccer, football, and tennis, and of course, cross country running and track and field, which they could informally practice with colonial association, but introduced the African nations to this movement and really had them fall in love with it. And so, what we see today, kind of the benefit of this, the second part of things, is that Africa has a wonderful history of kind of agrarian nomadic cultivation of the land and close association with the land that has been a generational aspect of their culture that they maximize to great benefit because track and field has been in their culture for more than 100 years and has been celebrated for more than 100 years as an official outlet and barometer of, of social influence. And so all the great athletes in East Africa and Kenya and Ethiopia and Uganda and on and on have frequently been distance runners who have made some sort of notorious claim on the track or the roads and sometimes in cross country to great acclaim and great fame and fortune. And so whereas in the West, we have football players and Mm. and baseball stars and basketball stars uh, in East Africa, they're almost all runners. And so it's celebrated there really is.
1: Yeah, and I think it probably goes back to that point that you don't you don't even need shoes. So you know, for some of the African countries where there isn't a lot of spare money to go around on on the latest you know Nike four percenters, they uh, can simply just go out you know at the front door and and run through some of the um, amazing landscapes that they have over there.
2: Yes, and and and, uh, you know it was almost by accident that they became so good because without great access to other forms of media or technology or or high society, they were really promoted to run in in order to survive. And their association, their community of runners is what keeps them at the top. Because Mm. the conversation is, well, East Africa isn't very wintry, or muddy, or foresty, (laughs) if you really think about it. But the Kenyan highlands are a wonderful example of just needing long stretches of dirt road at altitude, to really foster a love of nature and become good at cross-country, especially if you're doing it in groups.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's such a good point. When you've got you know, not just a nation but an entire continent that is focused predominantly on one sport, you know, it's inevitable that you're going to have the best of the
2: best. Absolutely. And and really, it was through the 20s and 30s that it was introduced. The, uh, the Second World War made quite an impact in the world at large as to who could participate in sports and what the climate was in terms of who was participating. But out of the post-war movement in the 1950s and 60s, we get our first kind of sign of international stardom from the East African countries of Kenya and Ethiopia as their athletes participate in Western games like the Commonwealth Games, uh, like the Summer Olympic Games, and of course, in universities across the world, and especially in the United States for the first time.
1: And speaking of the universities, so in Australia, we actually see quite a lot of the NCAA events, and especially the cross-country. And I find this quite an interesting one, because I've actually never gone over and. An Run in America in the college system, but the depth that it looks like and that cross-country culture looks absolutely phenomenal. And it goes back to around the 1930s you mentioned in the book.
2: Yes, and so the sporting culture of the United States is kind of a paradigm of American culture on the whole, which is fascinated and obsessed with the latest and greatest. And mm. and uh, you spend 30 seconds with an American, and you can tell immediately. Just, you know, kind of the the showmanship apparent in in all that we, we do, everything has to be the biggest or the fastest or the best. It's just a byproduct of American society and has been for a long time. But what's fascinating about the sporting culture and the university system is that they built on this idea that at any cost necessary they should be winning championships. And that extends all the way through cross-country teams. And from the beginning stages, international recruitment was a big issue. And Australia benefited greatly from this Canada did as well and some other nations, but so did the East Africans as they found themselves on these cross-country teams that they would never have been a part of 50 years previously.
1: So within the NCAA and you've got that amazing, strong, not only individual competition, but the team side of it there just actually sometimes comes across as stronger than the individuals. Where does that stem from and that love of cross-country and that college system? Because, I mean, I'm not close enough to America, but it doesn't look like it continues on beyond college and I might be wrong there.
2: No, it's a really fascinating aspect of American culture and it kind of is to the detriment of American professionals who run that there isn't such a strong rivalry between club teams. That mm-hmm. there are some very distinguished ones, and there is a little bit of a rivalry between certain coaches or athletes that see each other frequently. But the university system is built around competition. And so there's not only a storied tradition with teams that see each other frequently. I mean, we're talking about schools and universities who have really deep and storied rivalries. And in some parts of the United States, you know you can really tell at the at the dinner table who went to what school and and who's talking to whom because of it but it goes beyond just cross country running that you know these athletes are kind of raised to look at the other schools in their conference or in their area as being idealistically their rivals to the core, you know uh, that they're expected to beat them every season, that they're expected to outrace them, and that certain traditions promote certain teams to be dominant year after year. Well, in that landscape, you get wonderful streaks of teams that find themselves at the top of the top of the mountain in cross country, literally, and mm. winning championships again and again. And of course, coaches who hang on to their programs, you know, create legacies of their own. And at different points in the story of writing the history of cross country running it was really apparent that the coach and the culture of the team was what set separated the, the great from the good. And it really wasn't a factor of anything special beyond those two factors.
1: I will actually just ask you, you mentioned that you went to Stanford University. Did you participate in the cross-country program whilst you were there?
2: So I entered Stanford as a graduate student. And so I had used all my eligibility for college running at that point. But I was still connected to the culture at Stanford. And it was a wonderful experience to be associated with the team with such a close proximity because Stanford was kind of an Ivy League program on the West Coast that had a long tradition of its own. And so it it made sense to be studying these stories and these histories and these traditions in the same confines as a place that still had a storied tradition and was going on right outside my window. Mm. So I never participated on their team and they have a really good program, but it was great to have that exposure. And they post some phenomenal meets, including a cross-country invitational and a few track and field invitationals that are just really standout events.
1: And so once um, you finish college in America and you've come out of that system, where can you go if you want to continue to run
2: Cross-country. So what's fascinating about the American professional system is that it's largely governed by shoe brands and clothing companies who put money forward for marketing purposes, just as much as it is to finance, you know, athletes who are still at the best that they're ever going to be and still competing at a high level. So what is interesting about the story of cross country running as a sport is that the earliest programs and groups to organize did so for the love of the game. And that kind of amateur movement was what was recognized as being a cornerstone of cross country running for generations and generations. And, and if and if you were going to join teams like the New York Athletic Club or the Manhattan Athletic Club, it, it was not because a shoe company was sponsoring you in your next Marathon. And so the professional culture of running really took hold in the 1970s and 80s when organizations that were promoting purely amateur competition changed their rules for the first time and allowed athletes to make money as professional runners. And for much of the story of cross-country running, which to that point had been about 150 years, it really was a story of people who did it because they loved it. It really wasn't a story of people looking to make any sort of money at all about competing, including prize winnings, which were completely off the table. And so today in America, if you want to compete on a professional running club, then you have to outperform your peers to a great extent it really is the top one and two percent of athletes who go on to run professionally and actually earn a paycheck now yeah there are a lot of athletes, tough. yes there are a lot of athletes today who do organize with community groups and in their local cross-country clubs and running clubs to, to continue running for the sake of the sport. Some are more uh, productive and, and competitive than others. However, the climate for running professionally is changing. And this has really taken hold in the last 10 years, which is to say, we're seeing more and more groups organizing with better athletes who are doing so not because a shoe brand is sponsoring them, but because they identify with the culture of the community that they're in. And they want to keep competing.
1: So do you think that the 1970s was like the real heyday of cross country, which, you know, was Steve Prefontaine's um, era, sorry, which I know in in the US? Um, Or do you think it came a bit before that in the 1950s, where, you know, post-war, there was a lot more leisure time, there was a lot more freedom, broadcasting became the norm. Where, Where do you think the real boom of cross country
2: really took off? I think there's a sweet spot when you think about the the running movement as a whole that goes beyond just cross country, but also in marathon running and track and field, and even in trail running and kind of pure outliers of the sport as well. And that really took place in the late 1970s and early 1980s. Now, the reason for that was because the sport was just about moving to a professional status in a lot of those areas, road running had really taken off and become a more culturally acceptable movement for fitness and, there was just a plethora of wonderful international stars from all over the world who are on the same stage at the same time. Now, the 1950s and 60s and 70s had wonderful characters, and it really built the momentum for what happened in the late 70s and early 80s. But there's a sweet spot of just after Steve Prefontaine's appearance that we see basically every nation represented across the world at the same time in a competitive fashion That was just, it it was a wonderful experience to learn about and to talk to athletes about who still, you know, quite remember what that experience was like.
1: Yeah, that's quite true, isn't it? I mean, here locally in Australia, that the 1980s was very, um, very much dominated by Robert De Castella, who had great battles with, um, you know, a lot of the Africans, you know, a, a lot of the US. And as you mentioned, there was, you know, it wasn't just one nation dominating at, you know, world titles, Olympics, etc. It was it, there was always a handful of people from different countries that could actually come out on top.
2: Exactly. And so the, the competitive nature. Of the sport was at its peak, I believe, towards the nineteen end of the nineteen seventies and early nineteen eighties. And there was a considerable drop-off that happened in the mid-1980s and nineteen nineties, which was really to the detriment of the sport because it became kind of a different convergence of sorts that detracted from the popularity of the sport, and really hurt the chances of distance running to become more popular. We're seeing a rebound right now, which is great, but it's been a a long and slow climb out of that valley of what happened as a result of seeing all these famous runners and great champions at the same time towards the end of the 70s and early 80s. And so
1: what do you actually think was the cause of that decline in the early 90s?
2: Well, you had a less-than-fantastic running plethora of champions to choose from. You had a lot of great, stable names that were champions in the 80s that were reaching their prime or had peaked and were coming down, but there weren't a lot of new runners to carry the mantle. And really, that was a reflection of culture as a whole, which had transitioned from less-than-accessible premier sports to more accessible premier sports. And what I mean by that is to say in the 1960s and 70s, if you were a distance runner, it was popular because it was just accepted that if you didn't play football or didn't play baseball, you were pretty much running the entire time outside of those activities. But uh, popular sports became more politicized and celebrated and more accessible through the 1980s. And by the 1990s, The the culture of distance running wasn't as dramatic or as powerful as it had been, and there were less people participating in distance running than before.
1: I guess it was possibly around the time when a lot of professionalism of other sports started to kick in and so that probably didn't happen and look i mean here in australia and i'm sure it's the same in america that especially for 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 men they can join so i guess team sports and make a a great living out of it whereas unfortunately in running it's still
2: not quite the same right And, and you had the emergence of east african nations in a big way Due to a subsidy program that the IAAF instituted in the early 1980s to help pay for developing countries to participate. And so more and more Africans were participating at the top levels, and less and less Western, notable Western athletes were participating at the same rate. And it really impacted the nature of what people were watching when they were paying attention to track and field and marathon running and cross country, right? Mm -hmm. They were looking on the screen, they were seeing less and less Western actors from both genders, and it really became A difficult proposition to say. Well, if I'm, you know, from a Western community, do I want to be a runner or do I want to play another sport?
1: And so that's interesting. I didn't know that point around the IAAF um, with the assistance of, I guess, the less fortunate countries. And was it sort of an Africa-specific movement that they did, or did they do it with other um, developing countries?
2: Uh, There were a number of offered. I don't want to say per diems or scholarships, but but it, it was an incentive program that was initiated because of the new track and field format that was replacing kind of a bigger meet Grand Prix that was organized in the 1970s. And it was part of a program that was intended to professionalize the ranks and bring more exposure to it. I think there were a few media contracts that were held bidding wars, if you will. And so in order to publicize the sport to make it more international, that's when these invitations were given. And I'm not sure if it was a worldwide movement, like they extended it to countries like Argentina or Guatemala. But I do know that Kenya and Ethiopia were benefactors of this movement, because they were really brought into the limelight, and they remained there for a good amount of time. And uh, it's my personal belief that if you want to measure the success of a distance running culture in a a country, only look to their world cross country performances. And that will show you who's dedicated at the top ranks during Mm -hmm. that period.
1: Mm. Yeah, I mean, look—it's—it's it's quite true that maybe that '90s and then into two, the 2000s, there was maybe a bit of an. Underlying current of well, you know, the Africans are just going to dominate, so you know, maybe why bother? But it seems like, and and I'm not sure whether or not this is me being gender biased here, but the you know the women sort of stood up and said the bar's been raised, so let's try and compete against them. And you know, certainly the American women, um, you know, Emma Coburn, Shalane Flanagan they're right up at the top. Um, They're up there competing with the Africans.
2: Right. And and it's a wonderful wonderful dichotomy of the sport, because what's fascinating about cross country specifically is that of all the distance running events, it was a very outdated and antiquated understanding of the game, quote unquote, of cross country Mm. that (laughs) enabled women to Benefit the most from competition, and today we look back and we criticize the movement of the organizations in charge of keeping women running less distance. But this is the great this is the the great elephant in the room today, which is to say, for generations and generations, it was understood and accepted that women would run less distance mm. than men for the same cross country competitions, and it went on for more than a hundred years. Mm. Now. France was really the first country to to make an egalitarian effort to include women in cross country running. And there's a wonderful tradition in France of getting women to participate in male driven sports. But in cross country running specifically, it was understood that women would run less than men. And it was expected that they would just compete under those circumstances until something changed. And it really took you know, Seb Co coming into prominence as the head of the IAAF to really notice this difference and make a deal about it and say, you know what, we really are gonna organize a ten K for men and women to be unanimously run, which I I believe is the best move because it's the only event of its kind on the athletics calendar where women are running less for the same events as men
1: are. Yeah, it is bizarre. And it's only within the last couple of years where even here in Australia, you know, our major championships and even just, you know, the local schools championships, um, it was always that difference. You know, the men would run in the opens 12 kilometers and the women would run eight. And in the juniors, the men would do eight and the girls would do six. And um, there's, really, there's really no need for it. It's quite crazy that it's taken up until, I guess, you know, in the 2000s for that to actually
2: change. Right. And, and what's what's wonderful about it is that it, it's kept Western nations competitive. In fact, it brought in, you know, more competition and more conversation about the competition than before, because prior to this, it was just understood that, well, do I want to be a middle distance runner? Do I like running the mile? If I run cross country, is it going to benefit me? And more and more women were joining cross country teams and speaking out because it was benefiting them and they were so competitive. And Paula Radcliffe was one of the great names in the early 2000s. Mm. To yeah. challenge the Ethiopians and there is a lot of momentum for women to compete at such a high level
1: well I mean we've even got here in Australia Benita Willis who I think it was maybe 2004 she won the world cross-country championships and I've just finished listening to a podcast uh, where she was interviewed on this the last couple of weeks and she just had such an innate belief that she was just as good as the Africans, there was no reason why a woman from Australia couldn't be up at the top and, and competing against them. So, you know, I love that mentality, and I, I think I'm. You know, we see it in today's. The World Cross Country was just held recently, and strong teams were sent from a lot of uh, you know non-African nations. And although Africa did prevail in the end, there was certainly still some some good uh, results from non-African nations.
2: Absolutely. And Australia has a wonderful history of athletes who compete and perform on the biggest stages better than they ever were predicted to. Mm-hmm. And and there are, are a few instances where New Zealanders won the World Cross Country team titles out of nowhere, seemingly nowhere. Mm-hmm and wonderful, wonderful history of Australian athletes competing and finishing much higher than expected. In fact, uh, Pat Tiernan, who was a a wonderful Australian uh, team member and and ran in the NCAA in America, was the top non-African finisher a few years ago at the 2017 World Cross-Country Championships. And, you know, I care about these things and maybe a handful of others do, but many, you know, many uh, Westerners overlook the fact that Pat did such a good job after a season where he won uh, the N- NCA title over Edward Cesarek, this really powerful, you know, Kenyan transplant into the United States, and so there, there are so many stories like that, and it's really fascinating.
1: It is, but I'll touch on at the moment the world cross country because I think it's a an interesting one to talk about. It's been around for nearly a hundred years, I think. You'll correct me on the exactly how long it is, but it's been around for a long time. But in 2011, it seemed to get into a bit of trouble with only one nation wanting. To to actually hold the event and then them turning it to biennial. Where do you see like the place for World Cross?
2: The forebearer of World Cross Country was essentially the English movement to organise the sport and for a good chunk of time, about 30 years actually, it really was a five-nation competition between uh, England, France, Belgium, and in the surrounding great British countries on, on occasion, you know, it was Scotland, Ireland, and Wales. It wasn't until the 1930s that they brought in some other outliers. And it was an invitation only through the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, where countries like Italy, Portugal, the United States, Canada made an appearance. In the 1970s, the IAAF organized the sport formally, and that invited everyone who was in the rotation in the athletics calendar to become members participate and obviously host the competition. In the early 2000s, we see a big problem with countries that wanted to host it because to do so is a very expensive endeavor. And through the 1980s and 90s, the East African nations were so dominant that Western uh, Western countries essentially stopped sending their athletes. They said, what's the point of competing with Kenya and Ethiopia every year if they just trounced us. And that was the absolute wrong mentality to have. And of course, they would never openly admit that they were you know, not sending athletes for these reasons. But the importance of cross-country really declined because there was less appreciation given for the sport and too much attention brought about to the, the competitive nature of the East African countries and their place in the sport. And so with this lack of attention there was less momentum and less momentum meant less participation and less participation meant less money. Mm -hmm. And so while there were some wonderful events that were held in the late 1990s and early 2000s, there were were not a lot of bidders into the process of wanting to host this event. And as such, it became a biennial event and it bounced around a lot and less people wanted to participate even more so because they saw it as seen as being a secondary event that wasn't being held in the Olympics anymore, it was being held every other season, why do the thing if they didn't want to participate? So what it needed, what World Cross Country needed, because it was the only place on the athletics calendar where you could get a miler and a marathoner to line up next to each other and compete mm-hmm. at the highest level. Yeah, it's over- so true a predetermined distance. In order to resuscitate the sport, they needed an event that celebrated the history, that made the athletes the focus, made the course the focus, because a cross-country course is a wholly unique thing wherever it is held in the world. And Aarhus in Denmark said, you know what? We are going to lift the mantle of the sport and we are going to do the best that we can to create a world cross-country event that is second to none, that the world has never seen. We're gonna we're gonna capitalize on all the things that made cross country wonderful. The mud running, the the sand pits, the the steep hills. We wanna make it an insufferable event. We wanna include <laughs> beer into the mix because of course adult beverages are always a celebration. And we wanna create a tradition and a legacy that in imparts a little bit of the Nordic history, a little bit of the Viking heritage, and a little bit of the excitement that has been brought about for two hundred years of running that people don't even know about. And they sought out to create such an elaborate event that on paper, it just seemed too good to be true. It was one of those things that kept unraveling and unraveling and unraveling.
1: Did you get out there at all or did you watch it on the live stream?
2: So- I found myself in a, in a personal position where I had circled the date on my calendar and was planning to go. And of course, uh, uh, unforeseen setbacks prevented me from being there in person. But I was in, in communication with the team in Denmark throughout the process. Uh, they were kind enough to give uh, me some, some input even on the, the design of the World Cross Country medals that were handed out, which I thought was very cool oh, wow! Um, and very kind of them. And they took influence of all the work that I had done to impart a heritage exhibit about the 200-year history of cross-country running and included the earliest accounts from Shrewsbury School in England and brought in the huntsmen of, of the run in Shrewsbury to, to announce the, uh, the junior men's race, which I thought was a fantastic incorporation yeah. of the history. And they had all the great names there and all the great memorabilia on display. And it really became a, an exhibit of sorts, that athletes and fans and spectators got to witness throughout the entire event.
1: That's amazing. Well, I mean, we've got quite a keen interest at the moment, given that the next edition in 2021 is literally in my backyard in Bathurst in Sydney. It's about a two-hour drive from um, central Sydney where I live and uh, I'm definitely keen to get out there and just listening to some of the organisers with some initial ideas Mm -hmm. and they've been talking about having like a general public type of event in in some sort so that you know the, the that park run movement that's coming through can experience, I guess, that the course and the elites are going to follow on and and run with. So that would be something amazing. But um, have you got anything to do with that, the um, Australian Bathurst version?
2: The next edition of World Cross Country is going to be a pivotal opportunity to create momentum, even more momentum than was generated in Denmark. And I'm doing everything possible to include myself in those conversations and I have some great ideas of my own that the uh, the team that is organizing them have have taken into consideration, which is very flattering. Uh, one of those being that the event itself is supposed to be held in March, which is traditionally a winter month or early spring month for for most of the Western world, and in, of course in Australia is uh, pretty much in the middle of summer or towards the end of summer for you guys, where it's pretty warm, as 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 I've heard. Close to 28 degrees uh, Celsius for you guys, and what I one of my first opportunities to to impart some some suggestions went to the effect of can they hold the event at night to to kind of uh, dissipate the effect that the heat will have on a you know a competition that's in, intended to run over 10,000 kilometers over uh, hill and dale. So what ends up happening to the event and, and how they end up uh, hosting it will be a wonderful marker of the status of the sport in two years, but uh, it might <laughs> provide a few opportunities to do things that have never been done before. And so one of the opportunities for competition might be to host the event in the evening hours uh, to kind of help mitigate the effect of the heat and the summer weather that is present in the southern hemisphere at that time of year, uh, because the event of cross country is traditionally supposed to be in the winter months, and of course in Australia in March it's going to be quite warm. However, yeah. it has never been held at night before, and it, it, it will never have an opportunity to be held in an environment like this, you know, consistently. And so, why not take advantage of the opportunity and make, you know, make it the most exciting event possible?
1: I think be amazing. Have you actually ever run a night cross country before?
2: I have. And and when I was coaching my athletes, uh, you know, teenagers, most of them, it was quite the treat to circle on the calendar and say, this event, this event is special because it's going to be held at night, because it's a rare thing to have in cross country, but it's not unheard of. And it adds a sort of exciting element to it because it's so rare, and and it's special that way. I've only but, ever
1: done one at night, and I must admit, I loved it. So um, I think it would be, as you say, something special and something very rare.
2: Well, and I think it makes for good watching. It's kind of an exciting event because there's moments in a race at night that just, you know, everything's glorified under the lights, I think. so.
1: I agree. So where do you think cross-country is heading because, you know, from my standpoint, you've got this amazing movement of mid-packers who you described yourself as and that's what Brian and I are and, you know, general Public who'd like to participate in you know, fun runs are booming park runs are booming, um, even you know NCAA events and our local school cross countries are you know heavily participated in, but at that pointy end, um, there just seems to be you know, a lack of sponsorship, a lack of coverage, and then maybe even a lack of pathway for professionalism for the athletes
2: right exactly and so how do you combat this malaise that has taken hold with cross-country running in particular, which is to say there's a lot of other opportunities for the common runner to participate? And for most people, cross-country running isn't necessarily on their radar, although the forebearers of cross-country, uh, all, all of these park runs and obstacle course runs and mud runs and things of that nature are planting the seed in people's minds that, wow, there is an opportunity to be competitive, and it's an awful lot of fun. And so my standpoint is to say, in the last 20 to 30 years, there's a lot of judgment about the sport in a few negative ways that are easily transferable into positive ways. And if the sport is really in a valley, then it's certainly climbing out of that valley with events like what we saw in Denmark for the World Cross Country Championships and in the recent, you know, NCAA Championships and other events that are really promoting a great record of the sport and celebrating the traditions of the sport and the the problems that plagued it 20 years ago are not so much the problems that we're seeing today. What will really make a difference for most people with cross country running is if it's treated seriously. Mm-hmm. And all the efforts that we can promote to bring it in back into the Olympic conversation I think are valid and will hopefully lead to an inclusion of cross country either in the summer or the winter Olympic games, which I think would be a harder job to pull off, but would be equally exciting. Mm-hmm. And there's a few good reasons to have it in both. The first is that you know, cross country ran in the summer Olympics in the 19-teens and 20s, and we're just coming into the 100th year anniversary of bringing it back there, which I think would be great. And in the Winter Olympics, it would give an opportunity for athletes who run from Kenya and Ethiopia and East African nations to make a scene in the Winter Olympic Games, which is a place where they're not usually well represented in events like bobsledding or cross-country skiing or, or the like in figure skating. And so conversations are taking place in both arenas to the extent that cross-country running should be included. How will it be included? What will the presentation be like? And who will be a part of it? Those are the answers that we're looking for now. And all of this good momentum is just bringing the sport back into prevalence and power.
1: Look, I think I think you're right in that Olympic piece because the Olympics get you know funding when um, it, it comes around that time from you know bodies, uh, government bodies, and obviously then there's that mainstream media element and you know is I guess they say there's no bad
2: publicity, don't they? Exactly. And and, and what? Cross-country needs are a few good actors, good characters to follow in the storyline that people can get excited about in all ages. And there was a big of made about uh, certain athletes who competed in Aarhus, uh, notably uh, Jacob Ingerbertson, who's a uh, an up-and-coming 17-, 18-year-old runner from Norway who set all kinds of junior-level records and went toe-to-toe with East Africans. And, of course, uh, all the media pundits said that his name was talked about too much in the uh, broadcast when other notable junior runners from East African nations were running really well. But the inspiration that characters and and athletes of his nature provide for the common uh, media watcher uh, does volumes for the sport regardless of how they perform and, and and what I notice the most is that among the youth ranks the sport is still growing and continues to grow and continues to provide for a host of young people and young athletes the world over.
1: You make a really good point around the characters because in Australia here the probably one of the most dominant sports is Australian rules football, AFL and you know I have a Friends who have played the sport and they actually get media coaching and, and and help and assistance on how to present in the media and how to put themselves out there and you know it's something that I see is quite lacking in you know, in cross country and athletics, you know, these poor young kids get you know asked for an interview after one of their competitions, and they're probably just so shy and nervous that they haven't got that ability to really connect with the audience. And I think there's a real opportunity to assist them with that to get those characters out into the public eye.
2: Absolutely, and the more that we do to grow the sport and keep the conversation going, the better it will do uh, in the future. And Everyone who's participating at our level now is doing the utmost that they can to ensure that it continues to thrive for another 200 years. Mm-hmm. And how that appears you know, in the record books will be a very important process because what we're seeing right now, regardless of what it's perceived to be, is authentically a great effort to to memorialize the sport and promote the sport. Mm-hmm. And so if we can get, you know, more media events on the schedule and, and training for athletes and, and coverage of the sport, that would be tremendous. And of course, there's a ton of opportunity in Australia to get people Exposed to, to the events and get their knowledge up to speed so they can talk about the current champions and the current traditions. And, and I really think there's a basis for building on something spectacular to happen for cross country in the coming years.
1: Yeah. And look so at things that. Are- you know, people like you have done and you've you've written the history, you're out there talking about it, you know, you can tell that you're genuinely passionate about it. And I think that's really what the sport needs. Instead of a lot of negative connotations, as you say, let's turn those conversations into positive ones, get out there into the mainstream media and public and really promote what is actually a very, you know, healthy, encouraging and um, a sport that can be participated by all, you know, all classes, all levels. Um, So I think it's very inclusive.
2: Absolutely. And, and it's, it's my pleasure to bring attention to this because I think it's the first step in a process of education and knowledge building for most people who, you know, like yourself and like everyone who I've encountered so far to say, wow, this is really <laughs> remarkable stuff. Why didn't I learn about it in primary school? They should be teaching a course on it. I agree. <laughs> um, but also the understanding that it's going to take more than just a single person and in the history of the sport to make it great. And the community effort that it promoted and continues to promote is just fantastic. And the organizations that are in Australia and elsewhere that are doing everything to to bring attention to the new events you know the world championship in 2021 is going to be amazing i can't wait i've circled it again i'm coming out there i don't care what happens in two years (laughs) i'll be on a plane to Sydney, and it's going to be it's going to be glorious
1: oh good well maybe we can if they put in the the race for the mid packers maybe you and i and brian can battle it out across the course and see who comes up trumps
2: (laughs) i would love that i would love it and it would be my pleasure to come out and and meet you guys and i really appreciate uh the opportunity to talk about country today.
1: Oh, no worries. Well, where can people reach you? Where can they buy the book? Give it, give the listeners some info so that they can go out and learn more about cross-country.
2: Sure, absolutely. The, uh, the book is called The Complete History of Cross-Country Running, You can find it on Amazon. You can find it on most wholesale book dealers online. I run the website, therealxc.com. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram under the same handle, therealxc, the real cross country. Find me on Facebook and just reach out. Uh, The more people that talk about the sport, mid-packers like us will continue to dominate and eventually we'll catch those Africans at the top.
1: Exactly. Perfect. Well, I'll link all of those up into the show notes so people can find you and reach out to you. And thank you so much for joining me. I've taken up enough of your time, but I honestly could keep talking about this all day.
2: Well, I really appreciate it. Me too. And we'll have another opportunity, I'm sure, in the future to to rekindle the conversation and bring it back on the advance notice of Australia hosting the 2021 World Cross-Country Championships.
1: Thanks very much, Andrew.